Well, two weeks ago, Sunday, August 15th, while we were at church, the Taliban were busy recapturing the city of Kabul. And following the withdrawal of U.S. and NATO troops, the Taliban stormed the country and completed their resurgence and are now in full control. And many Afghan citizens, fearing the Taliban regime, they tried to flee, but were unable. And they're now left to live under the Taliban rule and all that it comes with. That includes the small number of Christians living in Afghanistan. Afghanistan hasn't been a, a friendly place for Christians for a long time. Past 20 years have brought a bit more tolerance, but even still, before the Taliban came back to power, it was ranked only second behind North Korea in Christian persecution. <clears throat> the church there already exists underground, and the only church building in the whole country is found inside the Italian embassy. But now the heat's really going to turn up on these underground Christians. Most believe the Taliban are See, really targeting those unfriendly to their regime, and that would most definitely include the Christians there. There's relatively few Christians in Afghanistan, estimates say around 10,000 for the whole country. But almost all of these Christians converted from Islam, that's a cardinal sin to the radical Muslim. That alone makes you worthy of death. There was a report of a Christian family living in Kabul who had secretly been watching church services via live stream. But a couple weeks ago, their neighbors discovered them. Now the father's been arrested. The family has fled. No one knows what's happened to the father. It's also reported that the Taliban are going door to door, looking for Christians and checking phones. Because no one really has a physical copy of the Bible. But if they find that you've so much as downloaded a Bible on your phone, you'll be taken. <clears throat> the few Christians left in Afghanistan seem to know what's coming. Some regions to the north had already come under Taliban rule Quite some time ago, and when the Taliban retake a village, they require all the households to go to the mosque and pray five times a day. And if you can't make it, you're required to give an explanation for why you missed the prayer time. And this requirement threatens to expose underground Christians. They're really facing kind of a Daniel situation. Will they compromise to blend in and hide or just come out as Christians, even though it might cost them? And some Christian leaders have now reported that they're basically just waiting for their inevitable death. Now, when you hear these reports, what do you think? And how do you feel? You might say your heart goes out to these underground believers, and, and it should. You might say you want to pray for them, and you should. You might fear for them and pity them. You wish they could escape, but those who've been left behind, that doesn't seem like an option at this point. And so you know what's likely coming for them. You just feel bad for them. But does any part of you rejoice when hearing this news? That sounds even wrong to suggest. I mean, doesn't that? That's insensitive. What's there to rejoice about here? And at the same time, though, some of you or part of you might pity these Christians. Does any part of you count them blessed? Does any part of you actually believe these Christians are being blessed by God? You know, that, that just feels wrong. That seems counterintuitive. That's not how we think of blessing. To be blessed means, in a sense, to be happy, to be divinely favored. And how do we normally use this word? You get a nice raise at work, or you, you buy a new house, we would say, you're blessed. Or you, you deliver a brand new healthy baby, we'd say, you're blessed. Or you get in a terrible car accident, but come away unscathed, we would say, you're blessed. Are these all signs of God's favor? Yes, they can be, certainly. And we are right to give God thanks for everything because every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father above, James tells us. 
But you should understand that this is not the totality of what it means to be blessed. How you interpret blessings is all about your perspective and your values. And most, Christ, uh, most people and some even Christians believe blessing means just getting what you want. And when you get something you want, you say you're blessed. And what do most people want? More wealth, better health, and above all, just happiness. These things aren't bad. But I just hope you realize that having these things is not necessarily a sign that God has blessed you. And lacking these things is not necessarily a sign God has cursed you. That's because biblically speaking, you're blessed not when you get what you want, but when you get what God wants for you. And that's because God is just operating off of a, a different value system when he blesses his people. And true blessing, the word means divine favor. And God shows his people favor based on his values, his priorities, his purposes. And so what does God care about most for us? What does he want to see in our lives the most? Health, wealth, happiness, they're not bad, but they, they just don't top God's list. That's because God has our eternity in mind beyond the health and wealth of this little life. He's thinking about us eternally. And so to God, what matters more? Try things like, like faith, like endurance, like your holiness. And to God, that is precious. That is invaluable. And so what if God took away some of your health and wealth in order to build your faith? What if he allowed you to be persecuted that you might become more holy? I mean, if God is orchestrating such things to bring about your greater good according to his values, is it so bad? Could you not say that in that sense, you're blessed? And furthermore, if you have aligned your purposes in life with God's, that's that you want what he wants. Your greatest desire is to be, more, to be made more like Christ. And you know, God certainly does that through your suffering. Well, could you not therefore even... In that sense, rejoice when trials come. You're not happy about it, but you're happy that God is faithful at work to bring about your greater good, your Christ-likeness. He will not abandon you. This thinking is challenging. It's going to challenge what you believe. It's going to challenge what you value. But for those who follow the Lord Jesus, you need to know that this is the way of the Lord. And no one challenges us more on this than Christ himself. And nowhere does he challenge us more directly than with his last beatitude. Matthew 5.10, Christ said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. This is where we find Christ's Beatitudes, which we come to finally finish this morning. It's, it's been a long haul as we've taken our time looking at these one by one. But in these sayings, these Beatitudes, Matthew 5, Jesus, he's letting us in on God's definition of blessing. What does it really mean to, to gain God's favor? You know, time doesn't afford us any sort of a substantial recap this morning. Suffice it to say, the picture Jesus paints is completely opposite that of the world. This is the way of the kingdom of heaven. And 
And those who are in this kingdom who belong to him, they're going to, they're going to embody the eight characteristics Christ lays out here. Each of these beatitudes has challenged how we think, what we value, but perhaps none more so than the last. Jesus blesses the persecuted. It's like the last thing we associate with blessing. But this final beatitude, it's the only one on which Jesus elaborates. It's like the capstone on all of them. You only get, get to the eighth one after you, you literally walk through the first seven in your life. But when you live according to the kingdom of heaven, these beatitudes, it's going to put you in opposition to the kingdom of the world. And this is a fallen world. Following Jesus has a cost. This is simply to be expected that if you're going to live like the Lord and follow the Lord, in this world, we can expect to be treated like the Lord and expect opposition, expect some persecution. But what makes this whole thing so unexpected is how Jesus says that actually makes you blessed, not cursed. That makes you blessed. Such persecution is not a sign of God's curse on you, but his favor. How can that be? That, that at first glance, it just doesn't make any sense. We aim to discover that this, this morning. We actually started into this passage last week, verses 10 through 12, the last beatitude. And we're just trying to discover that this paradox of blessed persecution, not just persecution, blessed persecution. We started off with the, the reasons of blessed persecution where Jesus doesn't just bless people who are persecuted for any old reason, be it personal or, or political. He has a couple of specific reasons in mind that makes your persecution blessed. He says in verse 10, for the sake of righteousness. And verse 11, for the sake of me. So we're talking here about suffering because you follow Christ, because you've taken his name, you align with him. That is a blessed persecution. Just like Christ warned his disciples in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Just think, how did the world treat Jesus? He was perfectly sinless and righteous. He did nothing wrong ever and only ever spoke what was true. But nonetheless, they hated him. His mere presence convicted them of their unrighteousness. And instead of just humbly going to him for forgiveness, they, they persecuted him. And Jesus says, to the degree that you live like him, they'll do the same to you. But if that happens, you are to know you're blessed. First Peter says that, First Peter 4.14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Not if you're reviled for any old thing, for your hobby, for your political passion. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, then you're blessed. In addition, we also covered last week the representations of blessed persecution. This, this type of blessed persecution can take many forms. Jesus highlights three in verse 11, insults, persecution, and false witness, spreading falsehood about you. And from, from verbal darts to physical attacks, we explored the many different ways the world can unleash their enmity against God, against his followers. Jesus was persecuted in all these forms. We can pretty much expect the same. So we've already found that in this last beatitude, Christ is just setting straight our expectations. We follow a rejected, despised, crucified Savior. What did Isaiah say about him? 
He was despised and forsaken of man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What do you expect in following someone like that? But it's not all bad news. And we focused last week more on the downside of this last beatitude. But that's important because it sets us up with right and realistic expectations for following Christ in a dark world. But we want to press on this morning and include the upside because despite all this persecution, Jesus is still promising a blessing. He says it makes you blessed. How is that? How can that be? How can he even tell us to rejoice and be glad when made to suffer like this? We need to find out. So we're going to pick up from last time, carry on and finish reflecting on the, the, this paradox of blessed persecution. We've seen the reasons and the representations. Let's pick up now. This is, I guess, technically number three. This is the responses of blessed persecution. The responses of blessed persecution. Christ sets our expectations. If we're going to follow him, this is what to expect. He does that so that we're not caught off guard, that we might rightly respond when the day comes. But we haven't yet covered like what that right response should look like. I mean, if the day comes where you have to take some heat for your allegiance to Christ, what are you supposed to do? How should we respond? Now, real quick, before we get into what Jesus says in the last beatitude, he gives us the positive response. I want you to quickly see the negative response, what not to do. Still from Christ himself, just just quickly flip over to Matthew 10. This will be a brief detour, but I think it's helpful to round out Christ's own teaching on how to respond to persecution. In Matthew 10, he tells us how not to respond. And that's useful. Matthew 10 is a key chapter on discipleship. It's the second major discourse Matthew records in his gospel. He's commissioning his disciples to go out and preach to the lost. But his 12 disciples did not fulfill this preaching commission in this, in this incident, uh, incident or in their lifetime. There is no doubt Christ's words here reach beyond the 12 and really are for the church and for all of us. But if we're to follow Christ, which involves telling other people about him, well, not everyone's going to like that. We can expect some persecution. <clears throat> Jesus warns in verse 14, not every household's going to receive them. Not everyone wants to hear their message. In fact, he says they'll be betrayed, handed over, persecuted. Verse 22 He says, they will be hated by all because of his name. Verse 25, if they call Jesus Beelzebub or or Satan, what do you think they're going to call you? I mean, just verse after verse, he's, again, setting their expectations. He sums it up in in a way early with verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That doesn't sound very safe. And so they're to expect rough treatment. Okay, we got that. How are they to respond? And here Jesus tells us what not to do, how not to respond. And first is, don't fear man. Don't fear man. Jesus repeats this refrain in chapter 10 three times. uh, Do not fear. Verse 26, he says, therefore, do not fear them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Verse 31, so do not fear. And he goes on. Jesus reminds us that the God will judge the wicked. He'll vindicate the righteous. Even if you are made to suffer, he's not abandoning you. He will deliver his people. So first things first, don't, don't fear them. Don't fear man. And then second, 
Don't deny the Lord. What else not to do? Don't, don't deny the Lord. I mean, it's simple enough to say, but in the moment, many are just fearful. And then they can be prone to, to take the easy way out. Just, just deny whatever the opposition is. Just, just deny the Lord and escape. And Jesus warns against this. Verse 33, he says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. This is still in the context of responding to persecution. Choices will have to be made. And look, it's easy to attend a rally or a retreat or a Christian conference or concert and the music works up your emotions, the preacher tugs on your heartstrings. He sells you on the message that Jesus just wants to come into your life and make it better. He invites you to come forward, raise your hand, pray a prayer. You do so, you're moved, you go forward, you invite Jesus into your heart. You make a decision for the Lord. And look, if those are genuine decisions, praise God for all of them. But how do you know if Jesus is not really in your heart? Well, when you're tested, you find out pretty quick. I mean, it's, it's easy to follow Jesus, make a decision for Jesus when it's popular. It's not so easy when, when persecuted. I mean, what if you had to risk losing your job to follow Jesus? What if you had to risk your reputation? What if you had to risk losing friends or family members for your allegiance to Christ and, and his righteousness? So what are you going to do then? What kind of decision are you going to make then? At the very least, in that moment, it will become clear if, if Jesus is truly your Lord, your, your master, and your Savior. Will you still confess him even when it's going to cost you big time? Or, or will you deny him and just save your skin, save your comfort? It's in this context that Jesus repeats his clarion call of discipleship down in verse 38. We know it often, or rather we hear it often. Verse 38, he says, he do." He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. But he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And Jesus ends this discourse with the reminder of of the stakes. Namely, just finding eternal life, being reconciled to God. Being rejected by the world, even some loved ones, is part of the cost of following the Lord. We don't, we're not seeking that out. We're, we're to be at peace with all men, but sometimes we are rejected. It's part of the cost of following a rejected Lord. So when you're made to suffer for him, don't fear man. Don't deny the Lord. Now, still, there might be moments where the, the fear does get the best of you. And, and in the moment, you might compromise or deny or stumble like Peter did before the cross. Thankfully, God is gracious with his children. Just prove, though, your your true discipleship as those who, in the end, persevere and seek the Lord. And Thomas Cranmer led the Protestant Revolution in England. They were reforming. The Church of England was formed. They were breaking away from Catholic tradition. Uh, He was made the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is kind of like their pope. But later, Mary took the throne also known as Bloody Mary, who was a staunch Catholic and led a, a fierce persecution of Protestants. Hundreds of Protestants were executed under her reign. Cranmer was arrested and threatened with death. They really, though, they wanted him to recant. And they said if he did, he, his life would be spared. They'd even let him regain his position as archbishop. 
And in an extreme moment of weakness, he did. He signed the papers. He signed, literally signed that there's no salvation outside the church of Rome, recanted his beliefs. The Catholics weren't done. They wanted more out of him. They wanted a public recantation. So they brought him before a huge public gathering. But in that moment, Cranmer knew he had been convicted in his conscience that in a moment of weakness, he stumbled. He denied what he knew to be true, just like Peter before the cross. But he could deny the truth no more. So when he stood before the crowd, he recanted his recantation and he confessed the truth of the gospel even if it meant his death, and it did. Immediately thereafter, they burnt him at the stake, and, and he plunged the hand which signed the recantation into the fire first. You know, as believers, we can't control what the wicked do to us. We can only control ourselves and our response. And that involves not fighting fire with fire, but ultimately trusting God. You know, when Christians are made to suffer for their faith, To whatever degree, you're getting just the the slightest taste of the greatest injustice the world has ever known. That's the crucifixion of Christ. He was purely sinless, perfectly righteous. I mean, he's the son of God. Nothing else ever happened so unjust as him being tried and condemned and crucified by sinful men. And when we get a, a taste of that reproach on us, whatever form it might take, we, we, we taste that injustice. It, it feels so wrong. It feels so unfair. We're just doing what is right, made to suffer for it. You might want to make them pay. You might want to get back at them. I mean, just how they treated the Lord and, and perhaps how they treat us, it just seems so unfair. But what kind of example did the Lord leave for us? You know, from last week, we read First Peter two twenty one, And following, it says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. It says, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, it says he uttered no threats, but just kept entrusting himself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And later in 1 Peter 4, 19, we're literally told to do the same thing. It says, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We can't control what's done to us. We just control ourselves, our response. That means we're not going to fall into sin. We're not going to fight fire with fire. We're not going to uh, deny the Lord. We're going to do what's right. And whatever happens after that, we'll, we'll trust the Lord for the rest. And so already we're learning some of the responses to, to blessed persecution, really what not to do. Don't, don't fear man and don't deny the Lord. Trust him just in the the deepness of your soul and trust your soul to your creator who's now also your savior while doing what is right. All right, that was just a detour. Go back to Matthew 5. I wanted to include a little bonus instruction because Christ rounds out and tells us, you know, how not to respond. But now back to the eighth beatitude where Christ tells us how we should respond, really more the, the positive, the right response. And it's quite simple. The, the right response is to rejoice and be glad. The Lord tells us positively to respond to persecution with joy because it's a sign of our blessing. Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you 
and persecute you. Verse 12, a pair of commands, rejoice and be glad. That's how we are to respond, rejoice and be glad. Command to rejoice, it's straightforward. You know what it means to be happy, to be excited, to celebrate. Really interesting, it kind of ramps it up with the command to be glad. Because that that Greek word means to skip or leap for joy. It denotes excessive rejoicing or, or ecstatic delight. Word was used to describe Mary when she knew she had conceived the Lord. It was used to describe the Philippian jailer after his conversion. Those sound like pretty legitimate reasons to be glad. And we're talking about the deepest joy of the Lord. When you've ever gotten so excited about something that you, you leapt, or you just kind of jumped, or you kind of pumped your fists in the air, or just some physical response was demanded from the good news you received. You know what I'm talking about. All the more reason that you would never associate that with persecution. That, that's never going to make you leap for joy. I mean, you would not associate being glad with all the Christian Afghans stranded at the airport right now. Like, is Jesus really saying they should be leaping for joy? That, that sounds so backwards, so upside down. I mean, how can Jesus be so insensitive? We're not really expected to do this, right? I mean, Jesus, he's surely just using hyperbole, right? But, but don't forget, right after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles, they kept preaching Jesus. The same people, the same Jews who killed Jesus arrested them. And the apostles, they were flogged. They were ordered not to preach Christ. And then they were let go for now. And then Acts 5 verse 41 says this. It says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. It's the same word for rejoice. The apostles were literally obeying the Lord's command. They were literally celebrating the fact that that God had counted them worthy to suffer like Christ suffered for his name. The verse before says they were flogged. That word for flogging literally means to flay skin. And so it's likely as the apostles were leaving, their backs were still torn up by the scourging they had just received. But they're still rejoicing. The world expects people to respond to, to persecution like Job's wife, right? Clearly God has cursed you in your suffering, so you should curse God in return. Just curse God and die. I mean, how, how could a loving God let you suffer so much, especially you who are his followers? How, how could you bless that God? But no, Christ says, yeah, don't curse God. You should bless God. He's, he's blessing you. And again, we associate blessing with happiness, which is all about getting what you want. When you gain your heart's desires, you would say you're blessed. You would rejoice. You would be glad. So with this in mind, that the real key to unlocking the joyful response to persecution Christ talks about is, has to do with changing your heart's desires. Changing what you find most valuable in this life. What do you want most in life? Or what do you live for? What's your treasure? I mean, health, wealth, and happiness are fantastic. But if that's what you're living for, you will never rejoice in suffering because suffering robs you of health, wealth, and happiness. But the Lord has, has something better in mind for his people, even, even greater than this. 
Again, keep a thumb in Matthew. I want you to see a critical text. So, so turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This is a special passage. This is not milk teaching. This is some, some meat from the Apostle Paul. This, uh, this is a letter Paul wrote while being made to suffer for Jesus. Now, like Matthew 5, 11 says, Paul was insulted, persecuted, and had false accusations brought against him. He checked all three boxes of being persecuted for the Lord. And that resulted in him being imprisoned in Rome, waiting to stand trial before Caesar himself with his life very much on the line. But Paul, in Philippians 1, he rejoices. He gives thanks because he knows God is doing so much through this trial. Then he writes to encourage the Philippians because he knows they have their own opponents who are out to make them suffer. He wants them to rightly respond. And so listen to this, uh, starting in verse 27. It's one of the most staggering passages in all the Bible. Verse 27, he tells them to stand firm in the faith, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And, and that too from God. It's just like Jesus said, don't, don't fear them. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. Their opposition to you, that really just shows their opposition to the Lord. That just means it's a sign of their own destruction. They're opposing the Lord. He, he will judge. We leave that to him. But notice on the flip side, he also says their opposition, that the fact that they're being opposed for being Christians, that's also a sign of their salvation. It demonstrates that they're truly in Christ. Notice the end of verse 28, though. This sign comes from whom? He says, and that too, from God. God is behind this. God has sovereignly ordained their opposition and suffering. Why? To what end would God bring this or at least allow this upon them? He says in verse 29, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Just, just think about that verse. Chew in that verse for a second. Verse 29. He says, to you it's been granted. Granted is charizomai. It means a grace gift to bestow free favor on someone. It's a grace gift. And that word is almost always used positively. Like 1 Corinthians 2.12. We are grace gifted the Holy Spirit. Sounds like a good gift. Colossians 2.13, we are grace-gifted forgiveness. I want that grace gift. Now here in the first half of verse 29, we are grace-gifted faith. He says, to you has been granted to believe in him. You are grace-gifted, your your own faith. Our salvation comes entirely by God's grace. But, But the kicker in the second half of verse 29, literally in the same way God grace gifts us faith and salvation, He also grace gifts us what? Suffering. It's a gift of suffering. Verse 30, Paul makes clear he's talking about, you know, the kind of suffering that lands you in jail, potentially facing execution, right? The persecution you saw in me. That's Paul in Rome. This is the gift of suffering. How is that a gift? I mean, it's the one gift we hope comes with the return label. Can we give this gift back? Can we not accept this gift? How are we to understand it? We keep punting the question, but, but let's answer it. 
There's only one way. It's by a perspective shift or a value shift. You answer this question in your mind right now. Right now, what's the best thing that could happen to you right now? Apart from dying, going to heaven, but here below, living this life, in any moment, what's the best thing that could happen to you? Now, I'd say most people, their answer has to do with, you know, health or wealth or happiness or maybe relationships, something like that. None of those are bad things. We, we want those. It's good desires. But if that's what you're living for the most, again, you'll never see suffering as a gift. Suffering takes those things away most often. But again, the Lord operates on different values. And there are things that, that matter more to him. Like we said, holiness, faith, endurance. In one word, it would be Christ-likeness. And the Christian is one who has aligned himself with the Lord's perspective. Meaning we know like we, we don't exist for our glory, but for God's. I'm not living for my purposes anymore, but, but for the Lord's. And what God wants of us, what, what glorifies him the most is when we are simply made more like his son. That's the end to which we were predestined, Romans 28, 29, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And God wants most in us who are believers to see Christ's character forged in us. He wants to see, to see us bear the fruit of the spirit. He wants great faith to come out of us. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. He wants us to produce faith. So step one is all about gaining the Lord's perspective on what matters most in life. This is not how the world thinks, obviously, but for the believer, you have to come to value holiness over happiness and greater faith over more money and increased endurance over better health. And then step two is realizing God can and does use trials to bring all those things about. Very readily, he does so. Again, what, God, what pleases God most is faith. We're talking pure faith, true faith. I've called it before 24 karat gold faith, like the pure thing. But if you know anything about gold, you don't just find 24 karat gold. You have to refine it, to pass it through the fire, to burn away the impurities. And every time you do that, what's left behind is purer and purer and purer gold until you finally get 24 karat. That's 100% gold. But that, that is what God is doing, orchestrating our trials and persecution. He's passing us through the refining fire to produce what he wants, what he values, holiness and greater faith. And so you put it all together, if God aims to use persecution for, for his sake to make me more like Jesus, and if, making, if becoming more like the Lord is what I want most, well, then guess what? I can, in that sense, rejoice in persecution because I'm getting what I want. I'm getting my desire. I'm being made more like my Savior. Of course, there's a balance here because we are never told to seek persecution or seek out martyrdom. No, Paul fled persecution whenever he could until he couldn't anymore. But Paul here writes, letting us know that in that day when you can't flee, when it can't be avoided, you're stuck at the airport. But in that day, you can rest. You can even rejoice knowing God, he's at work. A sovereign God is going to use that trial that you can't escape to, to refine your faith. We're safe in God's hands as he passes us 
through the refiner's fire. His intent is not to consume you, but to purify you. You know, last week we gleaned from Christ's final beatitude, the right expectations of persecution. Here we're gathering the right perspective of persecution. The Lord's perspective is the key to all of this. And the Lord, he, he always has eternity in mind. We're, we're so busy thinking about this life. In many respects, we just can't help it. But he's far more concerned with the next life. He really wants us ready, prepared, purified for the life to come. It's the greater life. You know, there are two people who are very close to the Lord, heavily influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. And just to support this teaching, showing you, I'm not just making this up, it's any wonder that, that they, they teach the exact same thing. Let me read for you two very familiar passages, but, but with this divine perspective in mind, you tell me what, what are the conclusion is there. James 1, 2 through 4, James, the half-brother of Jesus, what, what did he say? James 1, 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's a familiar passage, right? Count it all joy. How could you do that? How can trials and suffering be be counted joy. Look, he's not saying they are happy, they're joyful, they're fun, they're not. He's telling you to consider them joy. It's a perspective shift. And only when we know God is using them to produce stronger faith, he's forging us in that fire, that's yielding greater endurance, and that effectively seals our salvation. God is making us perfect and complete through trials. You can rejoice in that. You can even though it's not fun, not happy, but you can rejoice and have a joy that, that God is working in you. Also, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. We got to go back to 1 Peter again. Peter, the, the key disciple. What does he say? He's talking about salvation. He says in 1 Peter 1, 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter likewise cares about who you are when Christ returns, as opposed to what kind of life you have right now. And Peter says that it's sometimes necessary that we are distressed by various trials. Not all the time, but sometimes it's necessary. Why? Well, he says this is one way. This is a key way God proves or demonstrates the reality of your faith while he builds it up at the same time. And as you know, we're, we're saved by faith. So the proof of our faith, does that not ensure our salvation? Does that not assure us we are saved? And I'll tell you what, if you don't believe any of this, when Christ returns, when you see him and you know he's come for those who believe in him, on that day, at least, you'll be thankful for every single trial you've ever been through because you knew that God was forging and fortifying and proving your faith in that time. God knows what he's doing. He cares for his people. He's not going to abandon them haphazardly. He's shepherding them, guiding them. He's caring for them 
only it's, it's according to his purposes and plan, not yours, not ours. You just have to accept that. And you have to align your will to his will, your values to his values. And that has to do with things like faith, holiness, endurance, Christ-likeness. And with that in mind, God is perfectly prone from time to time to use the heat of persecution to bring those about. And so if these are your desires, if you want to see Christ's image formed in you, then I think only then can you actually rejoice in trials, rejoice in suffering, not because of the event. It's, it's not fun. It's not happy, but you can rejoice knowing God is working for you. He's actually blessing you. He's giving you his favor <clears throat> of making you more like his son. Now to wrap things up here, let's get to the final point of blessed persecution. And this really ties in to the right responses We've seen the reasons, the representations, the responses of blessed persecution. We need to finish up. Number four is the rewards of blessed persecution. The rewards of blessed persecution. Jesus, he explicitly connects the dots here. He, He tells us why this type of persecution is so blessed. You know, back to Matthew 5, he says in verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just like the first beatitude, same reward. It's in the present tense where all the others are in the future. It's highlighting the fact that that we belong to this kingdom now. It's not theirs will be the kingdom. Right now, theirs is the kingdom. Those who identify with the king, and especially his sufferings, they demonstrate They're in his kingdom. They belong to his kingdom. Theirs is emphatic, as with all the Beatitudes. So this would continue to mean that theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom. This is just the characteristic of any true disciple. You don't have to turn there, but listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, he says, he's talking to the church in his intro. He says, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for for indeed which you are suffering. What Paul is saying there and what Jesus is saying is that, you know, part of the reason we can rejoice in our suffering for the name of Christ is that it functions like a sign of our certain salvation. There's a type of angst some Christians have about the assurance of their faith. They want to know, like, do I really have true faith? Am I really saved? Because the New Testament talks a lot about phony believers. They say they believe in Jesus, but they're rejected at the judgment. They want to know, like, how do I know I don't have a phony faith? And you are meant to have and gain the assurance of your salvation, That assurance comes in in many ways by by confessing the truth, by walking in obedience, by loving the brethren. But one of the most tangible marks of your salvation or true faith is enduring persecution for the sake of the Lord. You think back to Philippians 128, Paul said their opposition was a sign of destruction for their opponents, but their opposition is also a sign of their own salvation. It's demonstrating that 
that they are truly aligned with God and his son. The fact that they will endure. They won't deny the Lord. They're giving a proof that they really have this type of saving faith. It's pure evidence of saving faith. This is just like Romans 8. You know this, Romans 8, 16. The the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and a fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Then he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. You notice that the constant connection in the New Testament between suffering with Christ first before being glorified with him. The cross always comes before the crown. Remember, Jesus went there first. But God uses these sufferings to to purify a people fit for eternity. God's playing the long game with your life, making you fit for an eternal dwelling with him in heaven. You have to know that and believe that. We're made heirs of this heavenly kingdom. Speaking of heaven, doesn't Jesus bring that up? Matthew 5, 12. He says, rejoice, be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. A great and glorious reward awaits all believers in heaven, and especially those who suffer for the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, I know when Jesus mentions rewards, for some Christians, any mention of rewards disturbs them. Like, aren't we saved by grace? Doesn't the mention of reward imply like we're meriting something? The New Testament mentions rewards quite often. It's still clear, though, that even these rewards are by grace because any fruit we bear or any endurance we achieve was still enabled by God's Spirit. That's why we always give Him the glory. We never glorify ourselves. But when God rewards His people in the kingdom... Yeah, he'll be crowning his own achievements. Nevertheless, presented from a human perspective, this this heavenly reward is meant to be a real motive for us to endure. Part of storing up our treasure in heaven, not here below. Once again, Jesus is equipping us with, with this eternal, heavenly perspective. We are to set our mind on things above. We are to live as heavenly citizens. Those in the world... They certainly can take everything away from us for the sake of Christ. Our freedom, our rights, our jobs, our comfort, even our possessions, our bodies. But they can't lay a finger on your soul. They can't kill the soul. And they can't lay a finger on your eternal heavenly inheritance. That same inheritance, Peter, once again, Peter reminds us of 1 Peter 1, 4. This inheritance, which he says is imperishable and undefiled, it will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right after that, he talks about our fiery trials. Realize God is protecting us for this eternal salvation through our faith. That's what he says. And so all the more reason if God is going to build that faith through fiery trials, is he not just securing our salvation. I mean, we we find here, we find a great motivation to endure persecution for the sake of the Lord when we look to the future and consider our heavenly reward. 
We also find great motivation to endure when we look to the past and consider the prophets. And this is how Jesus finishes this beatitude. Verse 12, Matthew 5. He mentions that in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. With this, he finishes. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God called a select few to be prophets. These prophets were ones who represented God. They spoke God's words to the people. And every now and then, these were encouraging and uplifting words. But quite often, these were words of rebuke and admonishment and warning. That's because the nations around Israel were living in wickedness and needed to be warned of the judgment to come. And most often, so did Israel because they were living in immorality and idolatry, even though they were God's people. And so God sent them prophets to shine his light on a dark land. How do you think most people like that? They don't like it very much. Just like you probably don't like it at nighttime when someone shines a bright flashlight in your eyes. You want to put the light out. And likewise, they persecuted the prophets. I mean, how many prophets can you think of that lived a happy-go-lucky, carefree, prosperous life? They were made to suffer for, for God. We could tell of Noah, who was mocked and ridiculed for building the ark. Or Joseph, nearly murdered, sold as a slave, unjustly imprisoned for his integrity. Young David, who was ruthlessly hunted down to be exterminated by King Saul. Elijah, made to flee for his life from the wicked Jezebel. Zechariah, stoned to death for rebuking the people for worshiping idols. Isaiah, according to tradition, stuffed in a log and sawn in two for being a prophet. Daniel, thrown to the lions for just praying to his God. Daniel's three friends, thrown to a fiery furnace for refusing to bow down and worship the king. We could go on. We conclude the apostles who were stoned, burned, crucified, beheaded, hanged, and clubbed to death simply for their allegiance to Christ. We talk about Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Just for following Jesus, they threw stones at his head until he died. We don't have time to talk about Paul's suffering for the gospel. Leave it there. We could also add the greatest prophet of them all, John the Baptist, unjustly imprisoned and beheaded. And so in all, this is what you get for following Jesus in a dark world. And you realize, though, in this last beatitude, the last sentence, Christ is basically telling his disciples and you, you're next in line, right? God has made the church to be a kingdom of priests. And in another sense, we could say he's made the church to be a kingdom of prophets. Because now, in one sense, we all represent God. Everyone in the church represents Christ. We've taken his name. We've all been commissioned to make disciples, to go into the world, We've all been told to speak his word, share his truth, the scriptures, share the gospel, let the light shine. That's the next passage in Matthew 5, by the way. And if you actually do this, if if you're faithful to do what he says, well, you, you can expect to be, at times, treated like the prophets. But have no fear. This puts you in in very good company, right? Hebrews 11, the faith hall of fame. You have all these dear saints, they suffered so much, but they they weren't doing it for earthly riches. They were looking for a lasting city, a heavenly one. They knew that they they were exiles and strangers on earth. And some of them were wealthy and some were healthy like Abraham, but they weren't living for that stuff anymore. They were longing for a heavenly inheritance. This earth was no longer their home. 
They long for God's kingdom. And so with their minds set on things above, they simply patiently endured their suffering and waited for the Lord. And look, you don't want to fit in with this world. You don't, especially you don't want to fit in with those who hate the Lord. You don't want that. That comes not with a blessing, but with a curse. Jesus says the parallel to the Beatitudes in Luke 6. He also adds some curses, which is the opposite of a blessing. Luke 6, 26. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You don't want to be in the company of the false prophets. You want to be in the line of godly men and women who lay down their lives to, to serve the Lord. I think of Moses, one of my favorites, Hebrews eleven twenty six. It says, he considered the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. You know, there's all some fear in following Christ in a world that's getting darker, and you fear the greatest cost. Eventually, someday, what, what if it cost me my life? And many in Afghanistan, they'll be paying that price literally in the weeks to come. Don't you to ignore that or not think about that. You, you should think about that. Confront this reality, which we, we don't know in America and maybe never will, but, but who knows? Very least, don't fear. At the end of the day, we don't serve a God of the dead, but a God of the living. And even if our lives are lost, he's one who raises the dead. And for those in the line of his prophets, a great eternal reward is to come. So you must replace your fear with faith, follow Christ, trust the Lord, and if needed, be willing to suffer for his namesake, for his kingdom and his righteousness. And in that day, know it only makes you blessed. You are blessed. Live with this ultimate assurance. Second Timothy 4.18, Paul before his execution for the faith. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, that's our prayer and that's our, our desire. We, we want to see you glory, uh, glorified forever and ever. That challenges us. We, we want to live for ourselves and for our glory as if we are God. But we are not. You are. And we must recognize that and, and see the, the God-centeredness to this universe, to our lives, to the scriptures. This is for your glory, your kingdom. But your grace shines in that you've made us partakers. We get to benefit. We're made co-heirs with Christ through his death, through his resurrection. We get to enjoy eternity with you, reconciled, all through the death of your son, the one who suffered first, rejection, hostility by sinful men. Yet we know Christ died on the cross rose from the dead to pay for our sins that we might be reconciled. We who don't deserve it. But you've called us, Lord, those among, here, uh, among us here who know you, you've called us to follow this Christ, to, to share his gospel to the world. That, that means a measure of his sufferings, great or small. I pray over the course of these two weeks, you, you prepare us. You've convicted our souls. You've, you've built up our faith through the word, challenging us what we value, what, what we want in life. Why are we alive? Resolve us, Lord. We're here to serve you, to know you, to, to, to let the light shine, even if it means catching some heat. Uh, build up our faith. Uh, embolden us to be witnesses. This world needs it. This nation needs it. If we're not going to do this, who will? But be with us. Whatever comes, Lord, be with us. We know uh, you likewise will deliver us. We pray 
however many there are, whoever they are, these, these brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, who are confronted in the news with, with the reality of what you said. 2,000 years ago, you said it. And we can count them blessed. We can rejoice knowing you will secure their souls and grant them, safely bringing them to the heavenly kingdom. Help them endure and hold fast the line and the faith until the end. And the same for us. We pray all these things in your name. We ask you to be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.